Welcome to the Musical Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Ploger, and during these podcasts, I'm looking forward to being able to explore all aspects of what it is to be musical, whether that is how we can be more musical as musicians or how we can understand why we love music and why we think it's musical or why it isn't. So we'll be exploring everything from how to perform music, how to listen to music, as well as aspects of music perception perception and cognition. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the Musical Communication Podcast. My name is Karen and I am your producer and I am sitting here with Marianne. Hey Karen, it is just such a pleasure always being with you. Oh, I am so excited. Um, Today's episode is going to be something that we've been so excited and anticipating for a while now was to receive some of your questions, you know, from our listeners and be able to ask them here live and in in real time on the podcast. So we've gotten quite a bit. So we wanted to start with um, a question that one of our OG listeners. Um, his name is Jeff Bauck. Um, he's a bassist, lives in New York. Uh, he's an educator um, and a jazz musician. And he he sent us a message asking, you know, he was enjoying the podcast and really was fascinated by the Ploger method, but was curious about not really resonating with some of the ear training things we were sharing and, and the fact that he felt like he could hear a lot more than maybe we were letting on to on the podcast. So he was curious if if some of our observations were geared towards more classical musicians or if this also applied to jazz folks. Very, very excellent question. Right. And I certainly understand. I think the training is so different for a jazzer because you guys usually just start off with, okay, let's see what this instrument does. And then the next thing is, what are the chords? And the chords are made up of dichords and (laughs) duh. And then you learn to transpose and you, you learn to hear fast because you have to. So it is a very different experience. And I've taught many a jazz musician, usually to answer that excellent question or that comment, the reason that I believe that knowing about, let us say, dichords and rhythms and all of that is understanding how it communicates. So it's always a problem that we have in music, I think, is that the people who can do it just keep doing it, but then they often don't understand why others can't. So uh, more power to you um, if you are a teacher and all of your students just get this all wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, this is not the common experience in my world, but, but that's, that's fine. But let's say that, that that is the case. The next question is, how do I know what these chords are? How do I recognize a minor seventh with a major ninth in there? How do I recognize that chord instantly? Why do I recognize it? How do I tell it apart from a dominant ninth chord? How can I tell it from a half diminished chord? How do I tell it from the suspension? How do I do that? And the fact that we can do it is great, but that doesn't mean we understand it. All right, so again, I believe very definitely that music is a communication that we do intuitively understand it, but I wanna be a chef who understands why these flavors combine. I wanna understand why I don't wanna combine butter with flour immediately in making a sauce. I've got to warm up the butter. I got to put it in there, but why, you know, so it's a little bit of the kitchen science thing. So to me, what I try to do with this method is to make people consciously aware 
of what the sound properties are that build these harmonies so that you can go on to recognize more and more complex forms. If you recognize, let us say, what the flavor of orange is, and then if you combine that with cognac, okay, you can you have a very definite sense of what that is. But what happens if you taste the orange but don't know what it's called? And you taste the cognac, and you, but you don't know what that's called. You still taste it. You still understand it. But if you can really understand the kind of chemistry that goes on with that, it's great. Now, I want to say it is true. Many jazz musicians have absolute pitch or very, very good sense of relative pitch. Very good. I mean, they could pick a pitch out of the air and play it on their instrument. Yeah. That's because they have to. Their memory requires that. Classical musicians don't have to have that. So your point is well taken. In your art, you are developing a lot of great things. But do you know what you're doing? And do you know what others are perceiving? And so for me, the gift has been, I could recognize musical intervals by ear. Couldn't quite tell why. But when I suddenly encountered somebody who couldn't, I started to have to pay attention to, whoa, how do I tell a minor third from a major third? And you begin to realize that a lot of things that we think are happening are not necessarily happening. Okay, so maybe the jazz musician doesn't learn that an augmented fourth, which is called the devil in music, uh, they may not even know that that's the case. All right. But many of us have been told that that's supposed to be such a terrible, ugly sound. And in my experience, that's not what I experience in teaching. And in fact, people would confuse it for a perfect fourth. And sometimes, believe it or not, in certain circumstances, a perfect fifth. So my work has been understanding what's going on here. What is it about that augmented fourth that is always the same in any context? What is it that remains constant? I don't care what the chord is, what the key is, how many octaves apart, what instrument's playing it, whether it's in tune, out of tune, what remains constant? And then that's been my work is why. Does it sound the way it sounds? Mm -hmm. And what happens to it when I combine it with something else? And that is what music is all about. So good. Love that. Okay. So hopefully, Jeff, that answered your question. If you have more, of course, let us know. Um, Another question that we had was, is your method and what you're sharing applicable for folks with perfect pitch? Is there added value. Um, you kind of answered that here, but I, I'd love for you to just go a little bit deeper. Um, when someone feels like they can recognize the pitches and the intervals and, and they just feel like this might not necessarily be necessary. Very good. Very, very good point. Uh, yes, indeed. I kind of intimated that what we want to do is understand what we share in perceiving, especially dichords. So my feeling is this, I think that absolute pitch is fantastic but it's a little bit like recognizing a letter in a word Hmm. i'm so sorry i've worked with people with absolute pitch and they can tell me what the pitches are but they may not be able to hear a chord now that doesn't mean they can't hear a chord they're hearing a chord just as well as anyone else but can they identify the quality of the combination of pitches? So this is one of those things. I believe we're in different parts of the brain here. I believe absolute pitch perception may be found to be in a slightly different location in the brain, I bet. Um, because I think that uh, dichords are almost more about meaning. So a dichord is like a syllable. And in the same way I can have I-T, those two letters, I-T, 
but guess how we pronounce it in English? It. It is not <laughs> the sum of its parts. It's more than the sum of its parts. So mm. ultimately, the problem with absolute pitch is that very often when I play <laughs> Thai chords and I play them at the rate of one per second, where the two pitches are, are simultaneously played, uh, most people with absolute pitch are hearing, okay, wait a minute, that's a, that's a C sharp and an F sharp. That's a perfect fourth. And you know what? I've gone on and played two other dichord since then. Okay. People with relative pitch who learn this method learn to recognize that dichord five, as I call it, a perfect fourth instantly in less than a second. So this means that ultimately people with absolute pitch, it's a wonderful thing. And again, especially in other genres where they, they, it's been very well developed, they can learn to, to recognize those pitches very fast, but they're still spelling them and not necessarily hearing the cohesive sound. So can I, I want to throw this out. Yeah. <laughs> this is something, this is just an example. So I did a workshop for a group of conductors. It was a national conference and I was, I think there were probably around 15 people in the class that I gave. And of those, I asked at the very beginning, would those with absolute pitch, please raise your hands. And if, and then of course you heard this, this grunt from the rest of the class is going, oh brother, you know, oh. Yeah. And of course, and instantly the people without absolute pitch thought game over. Okay. So, oh boy. And mm. I said, I just want you all to look around the room and notice the people with absolute pitch. And then what I would do is I would introduce the die chords, hearing die chords, and I would play them at the rate of one per second. And I'd be playing each of the 11 in, in an order that could be absorbed at a, you know, in such a short meeting, but just showing them certain properties about the die chords. And the people with relative pitch were just naming like nothing, just really easy, no problem. And the people with absolute pitch, they were there's a delay because they're hearing two pitches and then spelling the interval to identify it. This is the opposite process of somebody with relative pitch who might recognize the interval and then have to figure out what the two pitches are. Mm. Yeah. Then I would start playing trichords. That is, I might play the note C with a note G with a note A at the same time, but I'd be playing that and comparing it with one that is a C, a G, and an A flat, but transpose is what I would call an eight, which is the C up to A flat, and the C above, uh, sorry, the G above C would be a seven, so an eight seven, versus the one where the A is the top note, not A flat, that would be a nine seven. And I would be playing these and transposing it to all these different pitch levels at the rate of one per second. People with relative pitch were just nailing it. They could so easily tell the nine seven from the eight seven using what I'd shown them. But the people with absolute pitch were just dumbstruck because to spell that complex harmony at that speed, they could learn to do it. But the people, what was so revelatory is that, you know, people could look around and see the people with absolute pitch were not able to do it. Wow. And this is so common in my experience. So the wise people with absolute pitch, I think, perceive, and hopefully um, my dear listeners here, those of you with absolute pitch know that there might be something missing. And it's usually this ability to understand harmony. And frankly, I have to say the meaning Mm. of the of the notes and that is dichord interactions so absolute pitch is no better than relative pitch and i must say after all of these years i'll test my my new students not to make a judgment at all but just as a baseline to identify the 12 different pitches 
and I'll just do them a standard test where I'll do one note at a time to form the interval dot hum, you know, dichord, they'll say perfect fourth, you know, and da da in major second. Uh, what they have to do is identify it, and I'll just do about six of each. And I really mean this. I can count on the fingers of one hand the individuals who can get all of the dichords right in just one hearing of the interval. Hmm. And, and I've taught hundreds and hundreds of students. So I would say really good relative pitch is far rarer. The ability to identify a dichord without an outside reference is harder than recognizing a rarer, in my experience, than recognizing absolute pitches. Yeah, I love that. That's very <laughs> spicy, but also very encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, we all need this. We all do. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So another question, you know, you've talked a lot about your students on the podcast and, you know, working with conductors and, and musicians and uh, theorists. Uh, people want to know what, what are your students currently struggling with? I think that almost all of them come in with a feeling of not being able to hear in real time that they, they have, they can take a test where let's say this is not for our jazzers, <laughs> but where they do an ear training test where they get four hearings of a melody up to even eight in some schools where they'll play the same little eight bar, maybe even four bar fragment over and over and over. And you're supposed to write the notes down. Mm. Okay. Well, First of all, that is not fluent, <laughs> okay? And how many pieces of music, although some of them do that nowadays, um, minimalism, but where you have to have something repeated that many times to be able to get what's going on. In language, that would be impossible. You know, mm -hmm. if I went to France and said, um, uh, pardon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> eight times, you know, <laughs> so I could write it down. Uh, so I think that ultimately it, it is a, uh, the biggest challenge that we, we are faced with is learning to catch up our conscious mind to what we already musically understand. That is really to be able to think about what we hear in real time. And it should not be that strange to do, you know, when you think about it. And that's why I like to say over and over, 12 pitches and 11 dichords, and any rhythm can be counted in twos and threes. But I'd say that the biggest challenge is being able to capture the name of everything that's happening, that is, to be a chef. So the, I like to use this metaphor. I've used it before in one of the earlier podcasts. So we think it's incredible when a chef can taste soup uh, some kind of very complex soup, it tell you all the ingredients in it, and even the proportions. I think Gordon Ramsay sometimes will have chefs try that, mm -hmm. um, if I'm not mistaken. Really great chefs can do that. Now, I just want to throw something out to you. If you have a piece with lots of different voices going on simultaneously, a normal piece, the soup is changing often at the rate of two different soups in one measure. Okay, that is to say in a period of about four seconds. You may have this soup, then this soup, then this soup, then this soup, then this one. Wow. And, or <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's highly dimensional. 
But again, the ingredients are relatively few, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So, and we can organize them and and get so that we can recognize them fast. But that's that's a that's a challenge. And again, orchestral directors they have to be able to do that, or producers, record producers. Yeah. They have to be able to hear all those tracks and be able to tell when when something is wrong. There's the wrong ingredient in that soup at that moment. That's that's off. Now, I know this will sound terribly intimidating, but I want to just say music is actually beautifully organized. And if we understand the organization, it's, it's no, I shouldn't be mixing metaphors, but it'll be a piece of cake. It will be, <laughs> it'll be effortless. We expect yeah. nothing less. Your food and metaphors are incredible. Oh it just made me think too, like, you know, chicken noodle, clam chowder, broccoli. I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so fun. That <laughs> yeah, would be, wouldn't it? Delicious. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And in the end, it's all soup. That's right. It's, it's liquid. It's great. Yeah. 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 yeah, I love that. Okay. And I think this final question in wrapping, um, folks have asked if there are openings in your studio and, and what does that look like? Ah, thanks for asking that. Yes, I, I, I'm currently accepting students. I used to teach 40 hours a week. So uh, the more the merrier, truly. Uh, <laughs> the only thing I would ask is that you are willing to be devoted. But uh, yes, absolutely, uh, I enjoy that. And if I'll let you know if it, if it means that I have to just wait a bit, I'll put you in there. If you are devoted, we'll find the time. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So essentially, y'all can reach out to Marianne via her website. Um, she'll get an email, and then uh, typically you, you do set up a discovery call with prospective students right. and kind of meet them, talk to them. Um, share how you like to work, what they're needing, if you know you're able to to help and work with them, and then uh, they sign on for. You have a a very specific amount of time, fourteen consecutive sessions. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about when your research with you know perception and cognition, and also our ability to remember you know what we're learning? Uh, what what is your take on and why you have fourteen sessions, or or why you even prefer to do your intensives you know four days in a row? Mm-hmm. That's those are great questions. Yeah. Frankly, it's been shown by various researchers that to change a habit or establish new habits takes about 14 weeks on average. So if you really want to lick a bad habit and create a better one, usually takes around 14 to 15 weeks, something that various of the marvelous people out there who do motivational speaking will tell you if you're trying to change your habits. Mm -hmm. So Canfield, others, you know. So ultimately... Uh, that's one of the reasons I do it. And another real practical one is it follows a semester or seasonal thing for most people. Mm-hmm. So school semester, often around 14 weeks. And then we have the break for the holiday, and then you come back for another 14. So it's been in harmony with the semester situation. And uh, that doesn't matter for many of you out there who don't have the normal school system but I'm also going to be able to teach through the summer so which is going to be great so we don't have to have any particular 14 week cycle uh, it's just when you want to get on board mm-hmm. and uh, I just find that that really works beautifully by that period of time it's often when things will culminate mm-hmm. um, so that's the reason it, it is somewhat adjustable but I believe that we need to at least do that much for reasons of learning 
not only new habits, but the language, you know, to get enough yeah. experience doing things. Most of my students will continue beyond the 14 weeks, but by no means is that necessary. But it is a kind of a cycle. Let's mm-hmm. complete the cycle. Uh, 14. That's by the way, that's JS box number one, four in numerology. <laughs> so, uh, as a, it turns out, so the, um, uh, in terms of the intensives, in order to really retain something, you have to repeat it three times in 72 hours, three different times. Okay. So that's why, excuse me, if I am going to be doing some kind of a, an intensive and I'm going to be giving you new information on day two, I've got to repeat it on day three and day four mm. to make sure that it's going to stay in there. All right. So I try not to introduce too much new information in the third day, although I will just to make it interesting or hopefully to, to it won't be new, so to say. It'll just right, be right. Recon, you know, reconfiguring information. So, but ultimately that's why, that's why those four days are kind of important because I want to give you information on day one. I want to give you new information on day two and we want you to be able to play with that for the next couple of days. So that's usually, that's why I do that. Yeah. When you're studying privately, that's why it's going to be real important that you establish a practice habit. If I give you something new, you got to chew on it and swallow it and digest it and that means you <laughs> needed to repeat it three times in 72 hours in the next three days and and really taking that forward of course hopefully it's enough pleasure that and you can find the time you're devoted enough to find time to be able to make that 20 minute commitment of practice yeah and i feel like you know i have friends that work with you privately and i feel like it's just this this like safety net like i, I equate it to you know my weekly therapy where too much happens in a month so that weekly check-in is just so helpful. And if there's questions, like I think, especially like as adults, when we're taking lessons, like it can very much feel like I should know everything or I should figure this out from week to week. And, and I have heard from, from students that study with you that it's just so helpful to have that extra encouragement and reinforcement. And in more cases, unfortunately, it's more of like rebuilding trust with a teacher mm-hmm. and, and knowing that they're not going to come and, and shame you or yell at you or, or just make you feel bad. But it's supposed to be hopefully something that's encouraging and, and life giving, not life taking. Exactly. No, that's really true. The trust issues are very important. And uh, of course, it lets me check in with you to see how you, know, how you are doing, how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and we do all kinds of exchanges with sending recordings so I can listen to how really well you're doing. And so that you have a record of how you're actually doing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. so good. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for answering all of these of questions. Um, we will definitely be doing more episodes like this in the future. So if you think of anything, please feel free to reach out. We'll definitely... Um, keep tabs on that and and share it in some future episodes. Um, if you think of it, please give us a review on Apple Music. Um, that is one of the many ways that people can find us. You can always check out Marianne's website. Um, she's also on social at Marianne Ploger. Um, and we just, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much again. Bye.